time to start. So, should we try to get a little farther in the intimations out? A little bit. So, I brought in Frost at Midnight, which uh, we were talking about a bit on Monday, and which we will talk about at greater length later, later and greater length. But I just wanted to read the ending to you. And this is, remember, this is the same child as in the Intimations Ode. Again, an external fact about who that child is. This is Hartley Coleridge who said that um, poets rarely do prove prophets. So the blessing that he gives his, ba- his child, his babe, at the end, he calls him, I'll just read you what's basically the last 25 lines. The um, dear babe, he says, that's, oh, I should tell you, by the way, that he says, um, I think I mentioned this to you, but that the inmates of my cottage are all asleep. So that word inmate there just means uh, the people who live in the cottage with him. I don't think Wordsworth is actually echoing that when he talks about her foster child, her inmate man. That is, I think it's a common enough word that it would just appear. But it's got the same meaning. So the idea of living in a place, living in the cottage that Coleridge and his family lives in, or living in the world as we all do, according to Wordsworth, the conceptual connection is there. I don't think it's that Wordsworth is particularly thinking of Frost at Midnight, but he's thinking about whether you are at home in the place that you live or not. And for Coleridge, yes and no. That is, everyone else is asleep and he's awake. Um, There are really interesting echoes, as we'll see, between Frost and Midnight and the Prelude. Uh, The word vexes probably is something that Wordsworth gets out of Coleridge. Um, when at the very beginning of the prelude he talks about how his um, the breeze of inspiration has become a kind of redundant energy vexing its own creation. And what Coleridge talks about at the beginning of Cross at Midnight is he says, "'Tis calm indeed, so calm that it disturbs and vexes meditation with its strange and extreme silentness. So that something simply becomes its opposite in a strange way by being vexed by its own self-presence. So the breeze is a redundant energy. The silentness becomes itself vexing in Coleridge as the breeze is a redundant energy vexing its own creation in Wordsworth. But at any rate, he then Um, addresses the child. Dear babe that sleepest cradled by my side, whose gentle breathings heard in this dead calm fill up the interspersed vacancies and momentary pauses of the thought. My babe so beautiful, it fills my heart with tender gladness thus to look at thee and think that thou shalt learn far other lore 
in far other scenes. For I was reared in the great city, pent mid cloisters dim, and saw naught lovely but the sky and stars. But thou, my babe, shalt wander like a breeze by lakes and sandy shores, beneath the crags of ancient mountain, and beneath the clouds which image in their bulk both lakes and shores and mountain crags. So shalt thou see and hear the lovely shapes and sounds intelligible of that eternal language which thy God utters, who from eternity doth teach himself in all and all things in himself. So that's a version of the all in all that we were looking at on Monday. Nature was then to me all in all, and then the idea of God eventually being all in all. That is, so nature for Coleridge is the, um, the surround of lovely shapes and sounds intelligible of that eternal language which thy God utters, who from eternity doth teach himself in all and all things in himself. Great universal teacher, he shall mold thy spirit and by giving make it ask. And then the blessing. Therefore all seasons shall be sweet to thee, whether the summer clothe the general earth with greenness, or the red breast sit and sing betwixt the tufts of snow on the bare branch of mossy apple tree, while all the thatch smokes in the sun thaw, whether the eavedrops fall heard only in the trances of the blast, or whether the secret ministry of cold shall hang them up in silent icicles, quietly shining to the quiet moon. So that idea of nature as a place where Hartley will be at home, where he will be close to God because nature is God's expression of his own teaching and of his own love and care and so on, that idea is precisely what the Intimations Ode is turning away from when nature becomes the um, foster mother of human beings and tries to make her foster child, her inmate man, forget the heavenly glories he hath known. And so that turn away from nature, that's really the crucial thing to see in Wordsworth. Not that there's anything wrong with nature. It's not what Blake is complaining about in Wordsworth, which is that Wordsworth in loving nature is loving nothingness. Um, Wordsworth, too, is turning away from nature and seeing it as the very separation or the frontier that shows the separation between this world and some other possibility, some other desire, some other view of being which he is going to call the platonic realm, but which I don't think that's ultimately what he means. So it's the frontier which both connects and separates. And the standard view of the Romantics is to see nature as connection to God, but for Wordsworth, nature and earth are in fact the separation, not the connection. They are the substitution and not the representation of what they substitute for. 
And that's the crucial thing that happens in the intonation zone. So going back to it, since we are going to try to finish it today, or, you know, we can have extra classes tomorrow and Friday. Oh, no, I, I have class tomorrow. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. No, well, we did have a makeup class last semester, right? Yeah, so, we did. Yeah. yeah, and we have to have um, the... the <laughs> Um, two of you who are the three of you who are in that class we have another makeup class for 18th century poetry we have to do mm -hmm. oh really? Week. no! Oh, you are oh. so easy <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> how do you keep a naive person in suspense for 24 hours? I don't know well, I'll, tell you I'll tell you tomorrow <laughs> Oh, I get that. Okay, so <laughs> didn't work. You're not naive. That's good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you look like you just don't change your tone of voice when you do no, it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's it. <laughs> okay. So, um, so we looked at the place where Wordsworth is... Um, <clears throat> talking about the um, song of thanks and praise that he raises for the fact that he sees the child calling upon life, um, provoking with earnest pains the years to bring the inevitable yoke, <coughs> thus blindly with his blessedness at strife. So Coleridge has blessed him, but he is now at strife with his own blessedness in wanting to become an adult, in wanting to become the, like his elders. And that then, the really strange thing, and again, I can't emphasize enough how strange it is, is that that fills Wordsworth with joy to see this happening. And it's not... The joy is not that he sees it happening. The joy is that he should lament what he sees happening. So he sees the child turning towards um, the, the heavy as frost, the frosted midnight, presumably, life coming at him heavy as frost, and or the years coming at him heavy as frost and deep almost as life. Is it a reference to, to Coleridge? Directly? I think so. I mean, what do you think? I don't know. I Given that it's the same, again, it's, it's the same child. It's the same later. child, and it's later, and the father is Coleridge with light upon him from his father's eyes, and that the turn is away from the kind of nature poetry that Frost and Midnight <coughs> is um, praising, that Frost and Midnight is precisely na nature what Wordsworth says in the prelude, nature never did betray the heart that loved her, but the intimations ode is about how nature actually, even though she doesn't mean to, um, not the prelude to Internavia, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, doesn't mean to, idea. yeah, doesn't mean to, does betray. Um, nature's very existence in the world is to betray the heart which whose home is elsewhere. And um, nature's, nature doesn't do it out of bad motives, 
but still is um, making you forget the heavenly glory once you came. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I, I don't know if we're supposed to. Yeah, I guess we can choose who we like. But yeah, so do we like? Which one? I don't know. Just that I guess we could choose who we like. Well, because well, it seems. Well, like didn't we last on Monday? Weren't we liking him? Yeah. No. 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 You came in all full of wonderful things. Well, I I just said it reminded me of Harry Potter. I that didn't mean that I. No, but you also said the idea that there was this inwardness and depth that was so oh, unexpected. Oh yes, of course, yeah. But now I just don't like what he's talking about because it sounds a lot like Catholicism. This almost like self-sacrificialness mm-hmm. of like, oh, it's okay to be sad, like embrace that sadness. Yeah. It's almost like, yeah, like I would imagine like what you know Catholics do when they're like fasting. It's like, oh, we are commemorating. Mm-hmm the death of Jesus. Yeah. And it's like, we're going to starve ourselves and feel some negative emotion mm-hmm. as some weakness, if you will, yeah. of that thing that happened. So, yeah, I don't like him. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that he's willing the sadness on. He feels that he's looking for an answer. And his answer is that, well, because I feel sad... Sometimes, well, just indulge in the sadness. It's not, he's not indulging it. He's explaining some that he felt really bad and he had to answer that something. Also the other thing is like if you're if you're like trying to compare it to almost like the kids in the chimney sweep like the chimney sweepers, right? It's different from that because like Blake is actually looking at something that happened in the past that really did like he that really did happen to him, right? And whereas chimney sweepers are like having this false hope of what could happen to them in the future. Wait, say more. <laughs> so, it's not like this, it's not like this tragic, like, religious idea that, like, everything's going to be okay in the future. It's the idea that everything was good in the past. Mm-hmm. So, that's not as depressing an idea. So, so he's talking about, like, accepting, accepting, like, the... When life comes at you like frost, or, so is it like okay? That's the reality that I have to accept. So there isn't like a heaven in the chimney sweep, like that's promised to the kids after. But it's like okay, so life is meaningless and horrible, and I am gonna indulge in that. So at least that's what I'm getting when I read him. I don't know if I'm reading him wrong, but no. I. I think Blake actually had something happy in his childhood that he can actually rel- like that he can actually be thankful for, where the Timmy Seavers don't have anything that they can be thankful for that's happened to them already. Yeah. So it is better than that. That's what I think. <laughs> like he didn't have anything good, so he doesn't okay. <laughs> Were you gonna say something? No. Okay. Um Wordsworth is really hard, and part of what's hard about him is that it's he really doesn't. I've been I've been maybe over stressing the 
biner, a kind of binarism in how to think about him. And the he's really anti-binary. That for him is really, really important. If you read, which is really worth reading if you like his prose, if you like the preface to lyrical ballads and the... Um, <coughs> the advertisement, and so on. Um, he has a series of three essays. This is later. This is after he was not a good poet anymore, but they're still fascinating. Um, he has a series of three essays called Essays on Epitaphs. And what they are are about epitaphs and graveyards. That is, what an epitaph should should look like, um, what it shouldn't look like, what really good epitaphs are, the form of really good epitaphs, and uh, the form of epitaphs that he doesn't like. And they're, so really it's an essay on poetry. The first of the essays on epitaphs was started out as a very, 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 very long footnote to the excursion, um, to the first part of the recluse. And so here what you have, it's, I mean, just think how amazing this is just as a thought is you have this really great poet who is thinking about the poetry of graveyards and not thinking in Gray's terms, that is, he's not thinking of writing a poem about being in a graveyard or writing epitaphs <coughs> himself or writing about death, but he is interested in what mourners want to put on the gravestones of those they're mourning. And so the epitaph for those of you who took 18th century poetry or know the poem, um, the, the elegy in a country churchyard ends with um, a consideration of um, the epitaphs there and um, the possible epitaph for the poet himself. And the, but what Wordsworth is getting from Gray there, and if you don't know what Elegy in a Country Churchyard is, the title tells you what you need to know, which is that this poet Thomas Gray, the one who was the extremely learned poet who Wordsworth both praises and disses for his sonnet um, on the memory of Richard West that we looked at, remember, that, that I mourn the more because I mourn in vain, or I grieve the more because I grieve in vain. Um, and how Wordsworth liked some of it and um, not other parts of it that Gray explicitly said that poetry should not be written in everyday language, and Wordsworth is explicitly taking issue with that and saying in the preface to Lyrical Ballads and elsewhere that it should be written in everyday language. So then Gray writes this poem in which he's looking at um, the memorials of the poor, as he calls it, and those memorials are the language that the uneducated, that the rustic, to use uh, Gray's word, the language that they have um, for mourning those who have died, whom they love. And so then Wordsworth writes his essay on, or essays on epitaphs. And um, here again, he's thinking about which epitaphs that are just what people want on the gravestones of those they love, um, which epitaphs um, he thinks are great and wonderful and moving and um, work and which ones don't. And the person whose epitaphs he hates most are is Pope. Um, and he just, I mean, Wordsworth essentially despised Pope in every way, um, just thought everything that Pope did was wrong. 
I kind of get why. Why? Because, like, Wordsworth is all about saying things, like, in a way that, like, is easy to understand and as concise as possible, and Pope is all about, like, really forcing in a lot of clever stuff. Yeah, so Pope is it, ex, it explicitly about antithesis. That is, that when you have a paradox with a sharp contrast between things, and writes in heroic couplets just for that reason. But it's, Pope is just really about witty contrast. And what Wordsworth doesn't like about his epitaphs is that Pope is taking the great binary that exists, which is the binary between life and death, and using couplets and using antithesis, using opposition, to make that distinction feel all the more powerful. That is, that there is life and then there's death. There's, um, um, there's being born and then there's dying. And what Wordsworth thinks good epitaphs do is they diminish and blur over the distinction between life and death. That what a good epitaph will do is, um, well, you can, you can see it from We Are Seven. That is, that the speaker of We Are Seven, if you had to assign, if you had to say there is an English poet who is the speaker, who is the, the naive, the misunderstanding speaker of that poem, Wordsworth would probably call that person Pope. Um, he doesn't sound like Pope, but Wordsworth doesn't like Pope, so he's not going to sound like the way Pope does <coughs> to we who like him. And... Um, he may not be witty like Pope, and it's really hard to imagine Pope having this kind of conversation. But the idea that you do a little arithmetic and seven less two is five, that's Pope. That is, that everything is precise and has very clear outlines. And what the girl is saying in We Are Seven is, no, we're seven. That the difference between those who have gone to town or have gone overseas and those who are lying in their grave is not a difference which reduces the, num reduces the we in any way. That we are seven and we are seven because um, there's me and my brothers and sisters and that's what really counts. And the fact that one brother and one sister is dead counts a whole lot less than the fact that I have six brothers and sisters total. Um, that's what really counts. And so the distinction between life and death for Wordsworth is one that he wants to make less, let's say, than um, lots of people. And the reason this matters, I think, to the intimations order to Wordsworth on nature in general is that Wordsworth mistrusts, I mean, just to take the homely nurse, that is Earth, the homely nurse doth all she can, that Wordsworth's sense of um, the world and of the Earth and of the um, celestial light that um, the earth and every common sight seemed apparelled with when he was a child, is not that it's simply deceptive, 
or that it is a, that it's the Truman Show, that it's a that it's a false and um, evil, uh, ultimately evil material distraction from the truth, but that a its intentions are good, and those intentions are good because nature is somewhat does have some human quality, some anthropomorphic animation to it. And that anthropomorphic animation is, the, is making nature and humanity um, part of a larger community, or part of, let's say, a human community. If you want to know what human beings are like, let's look at not the child, which is still glorious in the might of heaven-born freedom on its being's height, but the adult, you can look. So I guess it's worth thinking about the kinds of adults that appear in the Intimations Ode. So the first adult to appear in the Intimations Ode is who? This is easy. Don't think. Wordsworth. Yes. The first adult is Wordsworth. And so that adult is depressed. So the first adult that we get is Wordsworth, and he is depressed and feels that he's lost everything. Um, the second adult is probably um, the, ba- the, the mother's arm that the babe leaps on in the um, festival that Wordsworth is attempting to, to get into the spirit of, but failing. Then what other adults? Probably the third adult, well, there's God. Um, but the third adult on earth might be earth. The homely nurse doth all she can to make her foster child her inmate man forget the heavenly glories he hath known. So the third adult would be earth itself. And then um, the fourth adult would be whom? I think before that it's... Um, fretted by Sally's of his mother's kisses. So the child's mother, with light upon him. Um, and then from his, his father's, father's eyes, eyes yeah. the next one. Yeah, so first the mother, then the father. And so he's not saying that the Coleridge's are, you know, somehow just total dupes and silly people who are trying to fool us all into accepting the world. It's, you get a series of you get a community of those who are no longer completely in touch with their heavenly destination, their um, heavenly vocation, and uh, the, ch- the child's vocation, which should be heaven, is instead seems to be endless imitation. So they're not in touch with their true vocation, and yet they, in some sense or other, are real people who have some connection with reality. And nature at its best is wonderful. Nature at its best is, is lovely and great. But it's not enough to feel at home in nature. And I think ultimately what you will see is that Wordsworth is ultimately going to say that nature doesn't feel at home 
in nature. And that is, I think, a crucial way of understanding Wordsworth. That when we saw the, um, let me see if I can find it quickly. Um, I mean, we can, we can look at book six of The Prelude as well, but going back to the, um, hang on. Uh, if you go to page 177, and um, this is the boat stealing scene again, but there's another thing right after that. Um, where is this? Um, yeah. Um, all right, so if you go to the end of the boat stealing scene, um, um Book one. This is book one. Uh, page 177. Uh, uh, let's say around um, four. So this is when the cliff rises up at line 413. So the huge cliff rose up between me and the stars and still with measured motion, like a living thing, strode after me. So it's as though the cliff is, is walking after him when it isn't. And we saw allegorically how, or metaphorically, how that hill was like his past, that the farther away he gets, the more he can see what's behind him. Um, an image like that in the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner is someone um, who feels uh, someone treading on his heels and doesn't want to look back because he feels it catching up. So with trembling hands, I turned and through the silent water sold my way back to the cavern of the willow tree there in her mooring place I left my bark, and through the window, through the meadows went with grave and serious thoughts, and after I had seen that spectacle for many days, my brain worked with a dim and undetermined sense of unknown modes of being. So unknown modes of being. Do they belong to nature or to something that transcends nature? In my thoughts there was a darkness, call it solitude, or blank desertion. So the word blank that we were talking about. No familiar shapes of hourly objects, images of trees or sea or sky, no colors of green fields, but huge and mighty forms that do not live like living men moved slowly through my mind by day and were the trouble of my dreams. So are those huge and mighty forms, are they supernatural or natural? And the answer is that they're natural if you have to pick one, if the multiple choice doesn't include all of the above. Then the answer is natural. They are like the cliff that was striding after him. So they still belong to nature. Or if you go a little bit farther to... Um, When um, um, their, their, their ice skating started line 463, all shod with steel, we hissed along the polished ice in games confederate, imitative of the chase, that is of hunting and woodland pleasures, the resounding horn, the pack loud bellowing and the hunted hare. So through the darkness and the cold we flew, and not a voice was idle, 
With the din, meanwhile, the precipices rang aloud. The leafless trees and every icy crag tinkled like iron, while the distant hills into the tumult sent an alien sound of melancholy, not unnoticed, while the stars eastward were sparkling clear, and in the west the orange sky of evening died away. So they sent an alien sound. So what does alien mean there? Not natural or natural? What he's saying here is that there's something alien about nature itself, and that the um, um, let's just keep going from there. Nor, not seldom from the uproar I retired into a silent bay or sportively glanced sideways, leaving the tumultuous throng to cut across the image of a star that gleamed upon the ice. And oftentimes, when we had given our bodies to the wind and all the shadowy banks on either side came sweeping through the darkness, spinning still the rapid line of motion, then at once have I, reclining back upon my heels, stopped short, yet still the solitary cliffs wheeled by me, even as if the earth had rolled with visible motion her diurnal round. Behind me did they stretch in solemn train, feebler and feebler, and I stood and watched till all was tranquil as a summer sea. Um, so what is that reminding you of? What, Lucy poem? Yeah. Spirit seal. Yeah. So there we have, again, the earth is rolling. Remember, um, uh, she, Lucy, is rolled round in earth's diurnal course with rocks and stones and trees, or her body is. Here we have the earth had rolled with visible motion her diurnal round. So there what you're getting is a kind of spooky or supernatural um, account of nature. And it's not that the supernatural is something that's above nature. It's above a easy and domesticated view of nature that belongs to um, what in Tintern Abbey Wordsworth is calling his glad animal spirits. That is just um, rushing around and having a good time and being um, completely happy in nature in a strange sense means not getting the sheer strangeness of nature and that to be in tune with that strangeness there also has to be some kind of anxiety that you're feeling or guilt in the boat stealing scene or sense of discrepancy between yourself and the world. And then it turns out not that the discrepancy is a discrepancy from nature, but that nature itself becomes the image of that discrepancy. And to the extent that nature itself becomes the image of that discrepancy, then it's not the homely nurse doing all she can. What it is instead is a reminder by being its being itself is reminding you that being is not enough that there is 
some sort of discrepancy within being which you need a reminder of. So the phrase to look for in Book 13 of the Prelude, which you'll finish for Monday, right? Good. Um, the phrase to look for, what? It's not that much more. Nine hours a week of reading. Not that I, not that I want to remind you of that. Um, but, um, well, where are we on the syllabus? Does someone have the syllabus out? Until like what we should be yes. Okay, so it's like 10 a.m. Today's April 10th. Okay, which means what are we supposed to be on April 15th? <laughs> okay, so this is perfect. <laughs> what could be more perfect? I congratulate myself. So what you the phrase to look for in Book 13 of the Prelude is the amazing phrase, the homeless voice of waters. And the line is that that's where nature had lodged the soul of the scene that Wordsworth is, is describing. Is He hears what he calls the homeless voice of waters, an amazing phrase. So the, so the prelude begins, we'll talk about this on Monday, but the prelude begins with um, a return home, that is, um, wh where shall what bale shall receive me underneath, um, underneath what trees will I be, and, and what whatever it is shall be my home, and it ends with the idea of homelessness, the homeless voice of waters. But the homelessness is itself; um, it's not being at home in nature. Nature is the place of homelessness. And it's not that it's not a kind of Christian version. You know, one thing that was troubling, at least under JP2, um, troubling to me at any rate, was the non-interest in environmentalism that the Catholic Church declared. And the reason, um, to the extent that it gave a reason for not caring about global warming and not caring about the destruction of the environment, I think Francis, for all his, for all his problems, um, is quite different this way. Um, but what John Paul II said was, or what the church was saying then, is this world um, is going to be consumed. This isn't, um, the, this isn't the real place. The real place is heaven. The real place is what happens after um, what was revealed in Revelation occurs, what was uncovered in the apocalypse occurs. It's what happens after Armageddon. So um, it's a kind of uh, idolatry, a kind of caring too much about the temporary to care about the environment because it's all going to be destroyed anyhow. And that's not where our spiritual destiny lies. And so that was, um, as I say, I thought a troubling anti-environmental stance that was official or semi-official in the Catholic Church. And <laughs> you're shaking your head well, with disbelief. It's hardly, it's hardly surprising. It's hardly surprising. And yet, I'm not surprised, but I don't believe it. That's, a, that's essentially. Okay. Um, and that is not Wordsworth. So for Wordsworth, it's that nature is the, is the place of this sort of self-discrepancy self 
which is what it means to be human, what it means to think. So if you put it as um, a question of that the discovery in Wordsworth, and we've been looking at, at versions of the word think in these poems, a discovery of Wordsworth is the um, something like the idea that where thought is, there is depth, or where there is depth, then we're dealing with thinking. And thinking is the hardest and deepest thing you can do. And um, I think he, you know, ultimately I think he gets this from Milton. Um, but thinking is not what being at home in nature is about, because then you're just um, in harmony with everything around you. And the grass is green and the sky is blue and it's beautiful and so are you, so just be prudent and play. No one's giving the illusion? You are. That's kind of sly smile. No one else? So there's this band that seemed to be named after a bug, but it was spelled differently, and they were actually referring to the beat poets, and they were called the beat tolls. And I didn't even hear what you said, by the way. Dear Prudence, won't you come out and play? Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're thinking sports. Yes. Okay. Um, dear Prudence, yeah. So the sun is out, the sky is blue, it's beautiful, and so are you. Almost Wordsworth, but not quite. Um, yeah. Okay, so I think I kind of get him now. Okay. So is what he's saying that um, like we focus too much on the difference between life and death, that we don't focus on their similarities. Yeah. Yes. So it's like if we zoom in on the great divide between life and death, it's like what he's interested in. Like sort of zooming in on the that line that parts life and death. Yeah. And sort of learning that it may be non-existent. Uh-huh. And that like even in our lives, well, because he does sound dead. Sometimes. Yeah, he sounds really dead sometimes. Yeah. So it's like, oh, okay, yeah, okay, I think it can So the, yeah, um, I mean, what Wordsworth at his best, which is really hard to be, um, but at his best what he is doing is preventing either a collapse of life into death or death into life or a separation between the two. So you could say that, you know, they're, they're kind of um, ways that people have of thinking about life and death, which can go, um, you know, people have to cope with the fact that they're going to die. And there, there are various ways of coping with it, all of which Wordsworth is not, is pushing away. And one is to say, as I said before, take the Lucretian view, which is um, where, or the Epicurean view, where life, where, where death is, we are not, and where we are, death is not. So... Um, what it means to be alive is to be alive. And um, death is not anything a human being will ever be because human beings 
are not human beings if they're dead. And um, so what you should do is be life-affirming at every moment. And that's one way of, um, that's, let's say, the be here now way of coping with things. Then there is another way of coping with things, which is the um, embrace the fact that you will die because it makes life more precious. And that if you were to do that, then you would, as Wallace Stevens puts it, um, you will see that death is the mother of beauty, which is a line. Um, yeah. Is it Sunday morning? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's right. Um, death is the mother of beauty. And the, there the idea is that it's the transitoriness of things um, is what gives them their beauty, and their beauty is all the more intense the more transitory they are. So uh, the Shelleyan version of this is um, uh, where he talks about um, the nourishment um, he's actually talking about intellectual beauty, but he, but his simile is um, that that it's a kind of nourishment like darkness to a dying flame. So as it gets darker, the dying flame looks all the brighter in the darkness with which it contrasts. And the thing about Shelley's metaphor there, or simile there, is it's getting darker because the flame is dying, but because it's getting darker, the dying flame looks all the more intense. So that there's another idea of it. Another is simply um, uh, what Heidegger calls being towards death, which is directing yourself towards this fantastic ultimate fact that you're going to die. And rather than denying it, which is what most people are, tempting, are tempted to do, or at least putting off thinking about it, which is what we're all tempted to do, um, what we do is that we feel our own power to confront our deaths. Let's, that's one possible um, paraphrase of what Heidegger calls being towards death. And um, that the very fact that we're going to die is a way of um, establishing the authenticity of our own um, being by, um, by not shrinking from it, but by praising that very authenticity. So all of these, I mean, you know, the, the, I'm giving you kind of sim simplistic or possibly parodic versions. I don't mean to be, but um, anyone who holds any of these views would um, no doubt think that I'm not being subtle enough about the views that they're holding. Um, and yet I think I hold all of them. Um, but in all those cases, there is a really strong distinction being made between life and death. And um, that distinction might be, don't be like other living beings, but understand that death has a capital D. Or it might be, don't be like other um, scaredy cats and understand that death is a small d, but life has a capital L. And um, those, are, those are aspects of the distinction between them. For Wordsworth, I think what he's doing 
is he's finding this just amazingly human place where the fact that there isn't that big a distinction between life and death, but not... Okay, so one other thing that you're told early on, this is something that, like, 14-year-olds really like to think they think, is that death is a natural part of life, so it's all okay. Because, right? Have you heard that, thought that, felt that? Like, yes. Yeah. Um, and it's a, a standard thing is, you know, it's so terrible that in modern times people die in hospitals and they don't grow up on farms so they don't see that death as a natural part of life. But if you thought that death was a natural part of life, you wouldn't be so afraid of death because it's just all part of life. Um, so that's another way of viewing things. I think Wordsworth sees death as a part of life, but it's a capital D death, not a small d death. That is that, and ultimately for me, the word would be something like discrepancy. That is that there is no place where you can feel at home. And if you can, and everyone else wants to offer you a solution where you can feel at home, with death, with life, whatever, um, in, in the fact that you're going to die, in the life that you lead now, that, um, that it's possible to feel at home in the world, in a world of life and death. And for Wordsworth, ultimately the experience is one of homelessness, but it's a kind of shared homelessness. And what you ultimately share that homelessness with is nature that nature itself is not a home, but a place of homelessness. That the experience of homelessness, which is human experience, is something that you can go to nature to see generalized, to see um, as not some idiosyncratic um, psychological issue that you're having, which is um, one of anxiety or of um, displacement or something like that, but rather that nature itself, although at first it looks like a place that can be home, ultimately becomes a place of homelessness. And then if you can feel and think of nature as a place of homelessness, then you think about it. Then you are in, because you can only do it if you think. It's not the presence of nature, but it's the absence within that presence. And so what is thought about? Thought is, again, by a reasonable, um, a reasonably evocative definition, Thought is, by definition, thought of what is absent. If you're with something, you're not thinking about it, you're just with it. Um, but if it's absent, that's when you think about it. So if you're thinking about something, you're thinking about something that's absent, something that your mind is, to quote Tintern Abbey again, supplying what is missing from your present 
experience. And so for Wordsworth, it's going to be thinking and thought that are for him what really matter. And what causes thought is loss. But it's not sorrow. It's not, I mean, the, the, the Catholic paradigm you didn't, that you were afraid Wordsworth was, was um, recapitulating is the way you were describing it is something like um, the sorrow that we feel for the sacrifice is something to embrace because of the intensity of love that it shows or something like that. And I think that for Wordsworth, there's nothing you embrace. And that's really the, uh, the, the, the powerful and strong idea in Wordsworth, is that it's not that you will finally find something to embrace. It's that you will think more and more deeply about not having the not having embracing something be the possible solution to the existential, I don't want to call it alienation because that feels like there could be a solution to alienation, but the existential otherness of, of um, being a person. Um, the, the, I mentioned him before, Maurice Monchot, the writer and critic, talks about a distinction <coughs> between proximity and presence. So proximity is when something is close to you. It's proximate. It's nearby. And presence is presence in the ordinary sense. And uh, Blanchot, or someone summing up Blanchot, um, uses the phrase, the absolute proximity of non-presence. So that's a hard phrase, but because it packs a lot into it. But what that phrase is um, doing is, first of all, distinguishing between absolute proximity and presence. One definition of presence might be, I'm sorry if I'm going over this too fast, but, but it might be helpful, that one definition of presence might be, might be something like absolute proximity. That is, proximity is something like um, someone is coming towards you um, at incredible speeds, going over mountains and rivers, and getting closer to you. Um, and the, the closer they get, the more proximate they are. And then they finally know how to reach you, and they do reach you. And then when the distance, proximity always implies distance. Maybe this is a way of talking about the frontier zone that I was talking about before. Um, if something is close, it's not there. Um, spring break is close, but here we are in class. Um, so if something is close, it's not there yet. And if it's there, then you wouldn't talk about it being close, although you could say, you know, here you are close to me. Um, but still, presence itself would be something like the overcoming of the distance, even if they're close. Pure presence would be even that distance is overcome. And so maybe you would de define presence as absolute proximity. 
that is closeness that is so absolute it's when the um, hyperbole actually hits the asymptote. So that would be a tempting definition. Well, maybe you're not tempted by it. You can see how some weird philosophers would find that a tempting definition of presence as absolute proximity. Um, you could see how that might be a, a, an interesting thing to say. And what Blanchot and then this guy Liebertson, who's, who's summarizing Blanchot with that phrase, um, is... Yeah, sorry, I, I was just lost for a moment in... in um, thinking about strange stories about Liebertson. But at any rate, what Liebertson is um, meaning by that phrase is, or seeing Blanchot meaning by that phrase, is that the what is absolutely proximate to you, if that's not an oxymoron, if you can talk about absolute proximity, um, that's like talking about two points touching on a line where two points can't touch each other because then there would be a point that they touched which would be different from either point. So one of the paradoxes in the Euclidean geometry is in the relation of a point to a line. Um, a point cannot touch another point because they would touch at a point which would be both of them. So absolute proximity can't be the proximity of another thing like you, another being like you. It can only be the fact that you can't be touching anything else in an absolutely proximate way. Um, can't be absolutely close to you. So what is absolutely close to you is the negation of the presence of some other being. And in real life, that is what William James calls the widest gulf in nature, the gulf between one mind and another. And that's because um, you're you and you're not anyone else. And the closest you can come to anyone else is proximity, but their minds can never be present to you the way your own mind is present to you. So if that's the human condition, and most philosophers don't want to say that's the human condition, but if that is the human condition, which is that what is ultimately proximate to you is never um, a presence, but always something other than a presence, then you can think of the other, when you're talking about other persons, then you have to think about the otherness of the other. And also you have to think about the fact that to them you are someone who is other, which it's very hard to remember. The Levinasian. Yes. Yeah, no, Levinas and Blasio were, were best friends. Yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah. Um, I mean, they were literally best friends. What uh, Blanchot said after Levinas died was that Levinas was the only person he said to to, the only person he tutoyed. Um, and oh, wow. yeah, <laughs> only the person? only person, not even his brother or sister or mom or dad. Or well, that's what he said. Um, <laughs> I don't know whether like he that's straight out of um, Dr. Faustus. Oh, is it Adam Mons? Oh, that oh, Adam Mons. Yeah, say more. How does it what happens in German? Um, the only one that Leverick can ever address is with the formal, is he? Wait, with, the, yeah, with the informal, with the, yeah, is who? Um is the violin player. Oh, that's so cool. And 
to the despair of the narrator, not him. That's great. Yeah, <laughs> I love that narrator. Uh, like one. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's great. So, yeah. I think <coughs> my my friend from Kenya would have an interesting answer to this. So we're both international students, and uh-huh. then we FaceTime. Well, once we FaceTime, she said something strange to what I was missing home, and then he said, "Don't worry, you have a home in yourself." Nice. Yeah. So I well, I was thinking about that as we're talking about like words words like homelessness. Uh huh. Yeah, the whole proximity thing. But it's like, yeah, you're far away from other things. Yeah. Whatever. But you're still, like, with yourself. Yeah. And I think, well, like, with Wordsworth, there's something to dig there because he obviously has these, like, caverns inside. Yes. Yeah. he's, like, exploring. Yeah. But where he gets lost. Yeah. So it's it's like, yeah, I don't have a home, but I can be my own home. Well, except that only to the extent that I can't. In other words, if, if what a home looks like is nature, and if it's the nature of nature to be a place of homelessness, then if you look for a home inside yourself, you have to find the homelessness inside yourself. Okay. So, I mean, the, you know, the, the haiku version of this is ba- Basho's famous, well, they're all famous, but Basho's haiku um, about Kyoto, which is um, something like, um, I don't remember it exactly, but it's, you know, all haiku have to refer to the season. That's one of the rules of haiku. So it's, um, I think it's something like in the spring, um, or maybe it's in the evening, um, but it's even in Kyoto, in the spring, I miss Kyoto. So even when you're there, you miss it. Um, You're you're longing for it. That's kind of exactly what this is. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that's the point. So yeah. if so if nature is a place of a place where you feel homeless, that is um, the place which is most um, the most appropriate place for you, um, be, and where you would be most at home because because not because you're at home in homelessness. But because anything that feels like home is fake, um, because there is no home. And nature in not feeling like home is the place that you can find closest, most, find yourself most at greatest proximity to the truth of non presence. Yeah. If we're thinking of the human condition, then can nature represent basically everything except us? Yeah, but um, but it's most important because everything that it represents is ultimately um, it's not being us. What it's representing is the fact that it's not us, and that therefore it is not a home for us. Um, so nature is not just like the outside world. Nature is like you and all and everyone and everything except me. Well, nature. I mean, nature is for Wordsworth. He's meaning it as um, rocks and stones and trees in the good version. I mean, in the happy version, okay. um, in the Thoreau version. Uh, look at all these beautiful rocks and stones and trees and these rivers and gorges and so on. Um, but ultimately, rocks and stones and trees become uncanny 
Um, some of you may know Freud's essay on the uncanny, which is, um, yeah, um, Dustin Heinrich. And what he is, one of the things that he's very interested in, um, you know, when, what you think about his analysis of the uncanny in the essay is, is, doesn't matter that much. Um, it's a really interesting essay for what it says about Freud, maybe more than for what it says about the uncanny. Um, but the first thing he does is, as he sometimes does, is an etymology. And that's an easy etymology. Um, unheimlich means the not at home, the unhomely. Um, the homely nurse is the opposite of the uncanny because das unheimlich is um, what is not homelike or homely. It, not quite the English meaning of homely, but not homelike, not associated with home. So that gets translated into English as the uncanny. Um, into French, it gets translated into the strange inquietude because they don't have, uh, French doesn't actually have a word for the uncanny. Um, but German and English both do. And the first thing that Freud points out is that in some German contexts, um, the word Heimlich, the opposite, the apparent antonym for Unheimlich, also means the uncanny. That is, that um, the word Heimlich is sometimes used to mean the spooky. And for Freud, that makes perfect sense, that the, what is not home-like, the least home-like thing in the world is, is the home. And if something brings back what home felt like to you when you were a child, that is going to feel uncanny to you as an adult. And it'll feel uncanny because it's too home-like when you don't live there anymore. If you've ever had the experience of going back to a place where you used to live and the eeriness of going back, you'll all have that when you, when you come back for alumni events at Brandeis. Um, but the eeriness of going back. Um, Elizabeth Bishop talks about um, the look of old wallpaper of a fish that she's caught where the scales are hanging down. They look like old wallpaper. And that's... Um, that could be extremely uncanny. That's a kind of standard experience, at least Americans used to have, of the uncanny, is seeing wallpaper that they grew up with many years later. Um, and Bishop is referring to that. Um, so that, that idea, not that um, nature isn't... Um, not that nature is, is, is a home and therefore opposite from you who no longer have a home, but that nature is precisely the home where you don't have a home. And that, that that's what it means for these forms that do not live like living men, um, that they, are, they were there all the time. Another, maybe another way of putting what's uncanny about going back someplace is that you're seeing something that was there when you lived there. It's not that it wasn't there. It was there. You're, its familiarity is what makes it uncanny. Not its unfamiliarity, but its very familiarity seems unfamiliar. It's familiar in an unfamiliar way. And that's what happens to nature in Wordsworth. I didn't mean for this to be an aria on estrangement or defamiliarization, but that's what... Um, it, what nature means to Wordsworth. And that's what he's saying since, darn it, we're going to finish the intimation zone. Um, that's what he's meaning. Um, 
when he talks about blank misgivings of a creature moving about in worlds not realized. Again, just notice those gerunds that he uses here. Not for these I raise, this is at line uh, 142, not for these I raise the songs of thanks and praise, but for those obstinate questionings of sense and outward things, fallings from us, vanishings, blank misgivings of a creature moving about in worlds not realized. So nature is a world not realized, you could say. The blank misgivings that we feel here, fallings from us, vanishings. There's no specific thing that you can describe here. He's not saying the way a lot of people might remember Wordsworth or think um, of Wordsworth as, what I raise a song of thanks and praise for are those obstinate outward things, something like that. Um, flowers and, um, I don't know, um, tree rings. Um, that is, things in nature that are, that are always there. But what in fact he's raising the song of thanks and praise for, what in fact he is feeling um, gratitude in itself for is discrepancy. That's the word that I keep using. That what he's seeing, everything he sees is something he's seeing disappear. Everything he sees, he's seeing the disappearance of things. So fallings from us, vanishings, and finally just blank misgivings. Just that, who but Wordsworth would make that the thing that you praise, blank misgivings. That could be a translation into French of the uncanny, blank misgivings. And that there's something wrong, but it's indefinably wrong. And it's not even wrong, there's just, you have misgivings about it. And feeling misgivings, you know, you don't feel misgivings about the death of Christ, right? Um, no, it's not like, well, maybe we shouldn't have. Um, I don't know if that was such a good idea. Um, that's not Catholicism. Um, but blank misgivings. And what does that mean? It means he's thinking. It means he's aware. He's not self-aware, but thought-aware. That's really funny. What's it say? Mm -hmm. the story about uh, that oh, right. one of his friends tells about how words would, would get lost in thought. Yeah. And he would be so lost in thought and so in this ideal world that to, to, to convince himself that he was in a real world, he'd have to hug a tree. Right, yeah. Yeah, so the first of the tree huggers. Yeah. 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 But, yeah. But he's in a world not realized. Yeah. So, then we get, as I said before, back to the May Day um, celebration, then sing ye birds, sing, sing a joyous song, and let the young lambs bound us to the tabor sound. We in thought will join your throng. 
ye that pipe and ye that play, ye that through your hearts today feel the gladness of the May. So you're feeling nature. You're feeling the gladness of the May. You love this nature, and it's great. And I know you love it. Um, I used to love it too. What though the radiance which was once so bright be now forever taken from my sight? So forever, not till I die, but forever. Take that seriously. What though the radiance which was once so bright be now forever taken from my sight? Though nothing, not God, not anything, though nothing can bring back the hour of splendor in the grass, of glory in the flower. Nothing can bring that back. Um, do you guys know the movie Splendor in the Grass? Warren Beatty? It's a good movie from the mid-60s. Um, Warren Beatty and Natalie Wood. Um, well, you should see it. The title comes from here, and it was shot at my high school. Um, uh, really? Really, yeah. Before I went, obviously. I hope it's obvious. Oh, uh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, I forgot the date that you said of the movie, actually. Okay, yeah. <laughs> 1990s. Um, Wait, oh. Now the, I'm lost. It's, it's from the 60s. Oh, okay. Okay, so though nothing can bring back the hour of splendor in the grass, of glory in the flower, even so, we will grieve not, rather <coughs> find strength in what remains behind in the primal sympathy which having been must ever be, in the soothing thoughts that spring out of human suffering. So again, you could misread that um, as um, embracing suffering, but it's the soothing thoughts that spring out of human suffering. Suffering makes you think. In the faith that looks through death in years that bring the philosophic mind. Yeah. No, not here. Okay. Um, and so, finally, at the end, he turns back to meadow, grove, and stream. But, O oh, ye fountains, meadows, hills, and groves, forebode not, I think you guys probably have, or think not of any severing of our loves. Um, he changed think to forebode. Do you have forebode? I have forebode. Yeah. Um, he changed think to forebode, and I think that's because he didn't want the word think there, because he's been using it to mean something else, and um, now he doesn't want to stop any kind of thinking. So for, to forebode not means don't worry that this will come in the future. Yet in my heart of hearts I feel your might. I only have relinquished one delight to live beneath your more habitual sway. I love the brooks which down their channels fret even more than when I trip lightly as they. Um, the word fret there sounds like a good metaphor. No one ever really notices it. But think about that word. Do you remember what, what Macbeth says life does? Like a candle. Yeah, but life's a walking shadow, a poor player on stage. That's not quite Shakespearean. Um, that that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more so people generally don't notice the phrase struts and frets or they just take it as a kind of um, 
hapax or idiosyncratic phrase, but think about it. What Shakespeare is actually saying is um, sometimes you're strutting around um, all cocky, and sometimes you're fretting because things are bad. That's life. Sometimes things are good. I got into Brandeis. Sometimes things are bad. Um, I got into Tufts. Oh, I have to pay for Brandeis, right. So you strut and you fret. And um, that's Shakespeare's two-word summary of human life. Uh, Beckett's uh, three-word summary of human life is to, um, to live, no, to love, what is there in life? To love, to eat, to escape the redressers of wrongs. That's what it means to be a human being. You love, you eat, and you try to get away from people who are going to try and punish you for the wrong that you've done them. Um, but for Shakespeare, it's just you strut and fret. Wordsworth, it's even the brooks fret. That's not, something, that's not a word he would have used as a child. He wouldn't have said the brooks are fretting down their channels. He would say they're, they're skipping down their channels. That's a much more standard word than fret. But here... The, Oh, no, I think it is. That's a nice connection. Yeah. Um, fretted with Sally's of, of his mother's kisses. Um, so that, I think that connection is right because it's also suggesting the way that this is um, from the point of view of the self um, uh, uh, self um, connected thing um, then fretting is just, um, just oh mom, and the brooks are just fretting. But from the adult point of view, it's the brooks that are fretting, that's because they're nature, not because they're the child fretted by Sally's of its mother's kisses. So I think maybe the contrast there is there as well. Um, but I do think this is Macbeth, whereas I don't, I don't think that fretted by Sally's um, of its mother's kisses is, is a thought of Macbeth. Um, so, um, the innocent brightness of the newborn day is lovely yet. Remember, the rainbow comes and goes, and lovely is the rose. Now, the innocent brightness of the newborn day is lovely yet. That's innocent almost in Blake's sense. Like, um, oh, my sweet summer child kind of innocence, um, to quote George R.R. R. Martin, um, as one should, because Game of Thrones is about to restart. Um, you're shaking your head in disbelief. No, it's going to be another yeah. addiction. Yeah, it's la one last season. Yeah, so do your reading first. You better, you better be finishing the prelude before Sunday night. Oh. Someone thought that I gave a spoiler in my other class because I mentioned the movie John Dies at the end, and then a little bit later I mentioned Jon Snow, and this person who was also a couple of seasons behind said, oh no, you just told me! And I said, no, I didn't. I wasn't. I the most rookie mistake that I could have a couple weeks ago, and I Googled the name of a character because I wanted to remember where Oh, I was. The, I you, that's... Her, I know, it was such a rookie move. Yeah. But I wanted to know what her first episode was. And you found her last instead. Yeah. yeah. Um, plus he's married to her in real life. Um, that, no, 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 <laughs> not, I know. Okay. Okay. All right. That was everything was upsetting. That show really everything. Yeah, that's that's true. Bye. Bye. Yeah. Um,
so I love the Brooks, which down the channels Freddie more than when I trip lightly as they. The innocent brightness of newer ruined day is lovely yet. The clouds that gather round the setting sun do take a sober coloring from an eye that hath kept watch o'er man's mortality. So the clouds look sober to my eye because I've watched over man's mortality. But also maybe the sun is that eye coloring the clouds. Another race hath been and other palms are won. Thanks to the human heart by which we live, thanks to its tenderness, its joys and fears, to me, the meanest flower that blows. What flower was that? What? The pansy. The thought. To me, the meanest flower that blows can give thoughts that do often lie too deep for tears. So thoughts that are too deep for tears. Thinking is deeper than even the most intense. I mean, maybe that's your answer in a single line. Thoughts that are deeper than tears. So it's not weeping over this pain and this loss. Oh, it's something it's deeper. Thinking. Yeah. It's like meditating. Yeah. Oh, constantly wondering about these things. Yeah. It's like, what, what are we going to do when we write our papers? Exactly. <laughs> nice. Mm, well, because in like modern approaches to therapy, it's like overthinking. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Are you overthinking again? Think about what you're doing. God damn it. Yeah. Okay. I'm already good at that. Yes. <laughs> That's a talent. You're right. 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 You're right.